Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're turning to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, We're reading Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. You'll find our reading this morning on page 822 of the Pew Bibles, page 822. We're beginning our series on the eldership, and we're starting that series by thinking about what the Bible says about the church. And this is the passage that we're going to be thinking about later in our service. So Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13 and reading down to verse 20. And this is God's word to us. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew 16. You'll find that passage on page 822 of the Pew Bibles. And as you're turning to Matthew 16, let's pray for a moment together. Father, this morning we come to you in the name of heaven's champion, the Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would speak to us through your word, by your spirit. We thank you for your word and for what it tells us and teaches us about your church And we pray that you would help us to understand what you're doing in our world more fully, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, and that you would bless your word to all of our hearts. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're beginning our sermon series on the church and the eldership. We're on the cusp of another eldership election within our church family. Uh, This will be the second election of its kind during my time here and the second within three years. Uh, We're holding this election sooner than we perhaps expected, but challenging and difficult circumstances in the last church season have led us to this point. Uh, We have therefore covered the biblical material on the eldership in, in recent times, but it will be helpful for us all to look at this important strand of biblical teaching again. Uh, Let me explain how this series is going to work. Uh, We're giving four Sunday mornings to it. Uh, Two of those Sunday mornings will focus on the church. That's today and next Sunday. And then in weeks three and four, we'll think about qualifications for elders. Uh, The reason we're thinking about the church is because elders serve the church. And if we don't understand what the Bible teaches us about the church, then we'll struggle to understand what the Bible teaches about the role of elders. Uh, Church is also a topic that we've covered in recent times as well. Back in 2021, in the middle of COVID, uh, we spent six services thinking about what the church is and so on. I I have to say that every time I come to what the Bible teaches on the church, I find it really, really helpful. It's really easy to misunderstand what the church is to do, what the church is. 
So hopefully this will be a refresher that will be helpful for you. Uh, This morning, the title of this first sermon is The Church, Its Origins. Uh, We're going to be thinking about where the church came from and so on. Uh, Last week from Luke 10, uh, you'll remember that we noted the change in thinking towards organized religion within our society in the past 50 to 60 years. Uh, The change has been really quite incredible, particularly for those of us who have lived through the majority of it. The, the modern person today doesn't have much room for the church. And broadly speaking, that's for two reasons. The first is that it's argued that the church is unnecessary. Some people say that the Christian faith neither needs nor depends on the church. That you can be a Christian without having anything to do with the church. That, however, is not what we're presented in the Bible. The testimony of the scriptures is that Jesus came to save sinners and to build his church. It's not possible to be a Christian who is faithful to the Bible and not come to church. There are obvious exceptions, ill health and old age and so on. But if you have no issues in that way and you're a Christian, the Bible teaches us that church is essential. The second thing that's said of the church is that it's unattractive. The condition and the people in the church are unattractive. And sadly and regretfully, we have to agree to an extent, a lot of mainline denominations across our world are in a very bad place spiritually. They're preaching another gospel, a gospel that is caved into the culture around us. Churches across the world have the name of being alive but are actually dead. Many are small, some are struggling, others are sick, and others are on their knees because of worldliness. As well as that, many Christians are not living the life that God calls them to. Hypocrisy is one of the most frequent accusations leveled at Christians. Why would I want to go to church whenever it's full of hypocrites? You've heard the arguments as many times as I have. Despite what people say about the church, neither of those arguments are reasons to walk away from it. We shouldn't deny the church as unnecessary and we shouldn't disown it because it's unattractive. We've got to understand what the Bible teaches about the church and then live in light of it. Another huge misconception that people have when it comes to understanding the church, and Christians make this mistake as well as people who aren't Christians, the mistake people make is that the church is simply a human society made up by people a long, long time ago. In other words, the misconception is that church is just like the golf club or the orange order or the farmer's union. Everybody gets together, they're from similar backgrounds, they like doing the same sort of things, and at some point in the past, someone said, you know, we should really make this a formal institution. And so we have the church. Nobody really knows where it came from, but here it is having been perpetuated down through the years as a result of someone's bright idea. Is that what really happened? And what does the Bible say? Hopefully you'll know that that's not how the church came into being because the Bible tells us that the church owes its origins not to man, but to God. There would be no such thing as the church if it wasn't for the fact that God in the depths of eternity planned to have a people for his own possession. Our call to worship this morning reminded us of that truth. Once we were not a people, but now we are God's people. The key phrase being that we are God's people, God's church. He is the one who created the church, owns the church, governs the church, and looks after the church. Where where, where can we go in the Bible, though, to understand the origins and birth of the church? 
Well, the passage we read earlier together is the ideal place to go. We're going to look at what Jesus says in Matthew 16 this morning, and we're going to see two main things. We're going to see that Jesus is the builder of his church and that Jesus is the protector of his church. Before we look at this passage together, it is worth saying that this is possibly the most controversial part of the Bible. There are lots of passages that are debated and discussed, but Matthew 16, particularly verse 18, has been a storm center of controversy. We're going to cover some of that controversy in a moment, but we're going to think about the origins of the church. When and how did it start and how does it grow? And the teaching of Jesus is the place to go. The first thing we see from Matthew 16 is that Jesus is the builder of his church. Jesus is the builder of his church. Our focus today is really only on verse 18 of this passage, but we will refer to the wider context at different points. Just look at what verse 18 says. Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the Christian church owes its origins to the Lord Jesus. He is the builder of the church. He says it very plainly, I will build my church. The church grows by his will and his work. Now, that doesn't mean that, what that doesn't mean is that the church didn't exist before Jesus said these words. 2,000 years before Christ, God made a promise to Abraham. God told Abraham that he would make him into a great nation and that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. That was the beginning of the people of God in the Old Testament before Christ. God called Abraham and worked through his family. There was a new beginning with Moses in Exodus. The Israelites were delivered out of Egypt and eventually after many ups and downs and over the course of many years gained possession of a land. After that there was another new beginning, another fresh start when Jewish exiles were restored to the promised land and rebuilt the temple That's the basic outline, the basic story of the Old Testament church. But the Christian church, as we know it and understand it today, began with Jesus. There's direct continuity with the Old Testament story, but it was a fresh new beginning. Jesus chose 12 apostles as as the equivalent to the 12 tribes of Israel. The church, therefore, is the new Israel under his lordship. So we can see that the church existed in its Old Testament form 2,000 years before Christ. Jesus established it while he was on earth. And it has existed for just over 2,000 years since he ascended to heaven. The church is still unfinished. One day the last stone will be added and the builder's work will be complete. But how does Jesus build his church? How are stones added to the structure? Your answer to that question depends on how you interpret Matthew 16:18. More specifically, it depends on how you interpret Jesus' words, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So the important bit is the two words, this rock. And now we've come to the controversial bit. But verse 18 is a key text for the Roman Catholic Church's doctrine of the primacy. In other words, verse 18 is the main verse that's used by Roman Catholic theologians to argue that Jesus gives to Peter and his successors a permanent primacy. Now, I want to say a few things before we talk about this. We've got to recognize the context in which we live. So in Northern Ireland, we have been severely affected by sinful sectarian violence within the past 50 years. So when we talk about things like this, we don't want to speak 
carelessly, but we want to speak really carefully. At the same time, though, we, we want to be clear theologically, and that's a really important distinction. What we're about to think about is not politics, it's theology. Not politics, theology. You'll hopefully know me well enough by now to know that I don't chase controversy for controversy's sake either. We're thinking about the origins of the church. This is the best passage to do that from. This is one of the issues in the passage, so we've just got to talk about it. With all that in mind, what we understand as evangelical Christians is that Matthew 16, 18 is not about Peter and his successors being the Pope. Let me explain why. There's no reference to any successors to Peter in this passage. Jesus is speaking to Peter, but he doesn't hint that he will have any successors after him. As well as that, the rest of the New Testament tells us that Peter didn't interpret Jesus as saying that he had a personal primacy. Peter is given the keys to the kingdom, and in the book of Acts, he opens the way for people to know Jesus. The Jews, uh, the Jews at Pentecost in Acts 2, the Samaritans in Acts 8, and the Gentiles in Acts 10. It was through Peter's preaching that people were welcomed into the kingdom. His evangelistic ministry didn't involve a primacy. When his ministry was over, he faded out of the picture. James took his place, and the second half of Acts focuses on the work of the apostle Paul. And then there's the rest of the New Testament. What we see throughout the New Testament is that the church is built on the Lord Jesus. Think of what Peter himself writes in his first letter. He picks up three Old Testament verses about rocks and applies them all to Christ. In addition to that, Paul clearly says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So that's why Matthew 16, 18 isn't about the primacy. That's what we don't believe. But what does Jesus mean and how do we interpret his words? Well, that's why the context of the passage is important. Just look at verse 13 and follow along with me. So immediately before verse 18, Peter confesses his faith in Christ. Jesus asks his disciple, d- d- disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And after that, Peter says that Jesus, after what Peter say, after Peter says what he says, Jesus says that he will build his church on this rock. It was Peter's confession of faith that prompted Jesus to say what he said. The rock, therefore, in verse 18, is not Peter, but the Christian faith confessed by Peter. The confession of Peter that says that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now that tallies with what Paul says at the end of Ephesians 2. Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the builder and foundation of the church, no one else. He builds it and he builds it upon himself. How are stones added to the structure? How do you become part of the church? By making the same confession as Peter and by committing yourself to Christ. We're built into the house by coming to Jesus. For some people, Jesus is a stumbling stone and they fall and reject him. For Christians, Jesus is the solid foundation on which we build our lives. 
So Jesus is the builder of his church. The church grows by his will and his work. But the church is still unfinished. One day the last stone will be added and the builder's work will be complete. Until that day though, Jesus is looking after his church. That's really the heart of our second point. Jesus is the builder of his church and Jesus is the protector of his church. Just look again at what Christ says in verse 18. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, the confession of faith that Peter makes, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, The word hell used here is better translated as Hades. Uh, Hades is the abode of the dead and is really just another word for death. Uh, You could read gates of hell as powers of death. Jesus promises that the powers of death and darkness won't overcome the church. It seems strange that Jesus uses the image of a gate. If you think of it in this way, if a city was under attack in the ancient world, what would have happened? Well, the gates would have been closed. Gates were part of the defense rather than a weapon of attack. But in the first century, gates were important parts of fortifications and were strong and impressive. The bigger your gate the stronger you were. The gates of Hades were, were, were pro- probably regarded as especially strong, but Jesus says not even the gates of hell itself are strong enough to prevail against the church. The church will never die, Jesus says. He's giving his followers the assurance that nothing in this world or the next can overthrow the church. What Jesus builds, Jesus will protect. Nothing will prevail against it. The, the threat of persecution can't destroy the church. We read about the first attempt of persecution in the book of Acts, but it only fanned the flames of the gospel. Christians were persecuted in one city and simply moved on to the next and the gospel spread. The, the, the hardest time for Christians was during the fourth century AD. The Roman Empire was led by an emperor called Diocletian and he began widespread persecution against followers of Jesus. In 303 AD, an edict said that all Christian meetings had to stop, all churches had to be destroyed, all scriptures had to be burned, all Christians were to be outlawed, and all their property taken away. His reign was a reign of terror, but the church survived. What Jesus builds, Jesus will protect. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, wrote, the oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow, The blood of Christians is saved. That has been paraphrased into the memorable quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Persecution and martyrdom are horrible experiences for those who go through them. But often during or after persecution, the church grows and flourishes. Jesus is building his church and he's protecting it as well. There will always be a church on earth before he returns. Death can't destroy his church either. It's as Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But believers who die aren't lost. They simply gain membership of the church in heaven. That's the thing about the church. There are two companies. One is militant on earth. One is triumphant in heaven. There are two companies separated by the veil of eternity, but they constitute one church. The promise of Jesus' protection for his church is real encouragement for us today. The enemies of the gospel are lining up. 
There are lots of powerful enemies in our day. Secularism in the West, communism in China, Islam in the Middle East. Just think of the number of people here this morning compared to the number of people who live in our community. The Christian church is small and weak, but Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. What Jesus builds, Jesus will protect. Nothing will prevail against it. So Jesus is the builder of his church. The church's origins lie in the Old Testament, but there was a fresh beginning with Jesus. His church is built as people make the same confession as Peter and commit themselves to Christ. And Jesus is the protector of his church. The picture at the moment might not be particularly encouraging, but there will always be a church on earth until Jesus returns. In just one, in just one verse, Jesus speaks about the beginning, the origins, but, but also the end of his church. It is small beginnings. It often looks weak, but it will have a glorious consummation, a, a glorious end. Jesus is the master builder and will finish what he has begun. Well, what's perhaps most notable is that Jesus calls it my church. On this rock, I will build my church. In other words, the church doesn't belong to any man or woman or boy or girl. It doesn't belong to politicians. It doesn't belong to kings or queens. It doesn't belong to the rich and famous. It belongs to Jesus. He planned it. He announced his intention to build it. He died on the cross to purchase it with his own blood. By his spirit, he builds it, animates it, and directs it. And he's coming again to receive it and to present it as a perfect church. That's the thing we often forget. The scaffolding is around the church here on earth at the moment. But one day, on the final day, on the day when Jesus returns, the scaffolding will come down and a beautiful, perfect church will be revealed. It's actually a great illustration of that, not too far away from us. We're building a physical church at the moment. The foundations have been laid. The blocks are being put into place. We can sort of imagine what the building's going to be like. It's kind of messy, though. There are lots of materials around the site. And it's entirely surrounded by scaffolding. But one day, not too far away, the scaffolding will come down and a beautiful building will be revealed. One day, on the first day of eternity, Jesus will stand by his church, people like you and me, the church he planned, the church he died for, and for the first time, but forevermore, his church will be perfect, sinless, and complete. That means that investing in the church now, getting involved in the church now, really matters. Jesus is building it. Do you want to help out? The survival of the church doesn't depend on us. We might build our churches with bricks and mortar, but we can't build the church of Jesus Christ. He can be trusted, though, to look after his work. It follows that if the church belongs to Christ, then we belong to Christ because we are the church. We are Jesus' special possession. So are we ready to fall into step with what he's doing. It's not possible to be a Christian who is faithful to the Bible and not come to church. Now, there are obvious exceptions, ill health, old age, and so on. But if you have no issues in that way and you're a Christian, the Bible teaches you that the church is essential. Well, what if you're here this morning and 
You're part of the church in that you're here, but you're not part of the church because you're not trusting in Jesus. Well, what should you do? Well, you should realize that this is the only thing that matters. The only thing that will matter on the first day of eternity is whether or not you're part of the church, part of Jesus' people, numbered with those who have confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah who has come. Nothing else will matter. And nothing else will give you entry into God's paradise. That means that trusting in Jesus now is more important than anything else. Who do you say that he is? That's the question Jesus asked his disciples. It's the question that he leaves with you this morning if you're not trusting in him. Who do you say that I am? What will your answer be? And will you be there on day one of eternity when the scaffolding comes down on Jesus' perfect church? Jesus is the builder of his church and Jesus is the protector of his church. The church is still unfinished and there's room for you to come to Christ today. Let's pray together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, the church. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, we thank you that those verses tell us who we are in Christ. We thank you that Jesus is building his church, that he's adding men and women and boys and girls to it each day, and that he's also protecting it and looking after it. Lord, we look forward to that first day of eternity when the scaffolding comes down on the chosen race, the, the royal priesthood, the people for Jesus' own possession. But until that day, we pray that you would speak to those who haven't yet trusted in Christ and that you would help them to realize that there's still room for them to come to him today. Father, we pray that you'd encourage us, that you'd continue with us as we go about our daily business and that you'd be with us into this week as well. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.